Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store, Orleans, Cape Cod. Birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. And by Vortex Optics with the VIP warranty, their unlimited lifetime promise to keep you and your optic covered. Learn more at vortexoptics.com. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to our show number 963. We'll start off this morning with kind of a different listener-submitted avian audio postcard. This one features our friend Gino Ellison taking a little break from his North American big year effort and his friend, Dr. Pepper Trail. Here we go. Hey, Ray, it's Gino Ellison. I'm out at Eastern Point in Gloucester, Massachusetts, and I'm with Pepper Trail, PhD, who is a forensic expert on bird crime. Am I saying that right? Pretty close, Gino. I uh, am retired, but I was the senior forensic ornithologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, worked at their national lab, which is in Oregon, and I worked to identify evidence of crime when the victim of the crime was a bird. That's fascinating. Now, I know this isn't a lighthearted thing like Ace Ventura, pet detective. This is serious <laughs> stuff. What kinds of things would you be investigating? A huge variety of uh, different kinds of violations of federal wildlife law. Everything from identifying the victims of oil spills to live bird, the live bird trade, parrots and birds from Asia and the Caribbean to things made of bird feathers, protected bird feathers like Brazilian feather art with macaws and harpy eagle feathers to... uh, North American golden eagle and bald eagle feathers. So just a huge variety of things would come into our laboratory. That's fantastic. Now, you mentioned you're retired. So tell tell us, what are you doing now? Well, my work uh, as a forensic bi- biologist was fascinating and challenging and important, but also could be very depressing because bet, everything I was looking at day to day was was dead. And not just a little bit dead, but like really dead. Okay. So. It's very important for me to get out and uh, see live birds and all of their beauty and variety. And so now I'm doing a lot of uh, bird tour leading around the world. I just got back recently from a trip from uh, Bali and Indonesia all the way across to New Guinea and down to Australia. Uh, So that was fabulous. Uh, I also was in Greenland this year and in uh, Melanesia. So I travel the world to try to see exotic birds and to educate people about the importance of of preserving the habitats and the birds that we have all around the globe. Well, thank you for taking a few minutes to talk with us. Thank you for your years of service with U.S. Wildlife and Fisheries and enjoy your retirement and seeing all these wonderful birds all over the world. Oh, thanks a lot. I certainly will. All right, Ray, take it from here. All right. Thank you, Gino. He's doing that big year. We'll get an update on how he's doing, which is very well, I know, uh, soon. Meanwhile, audio postcards. We love getting them. If you're looking at birds, just bring your smartphone or some digital device and do a little piece on what you're seeing and uh, send it to us. Just send the file to ray at talkingbirds.com for your audio postcard, ray at talkingbirds.com. If that bird sounds familiar, you have a leg up on our mystery bird contest coming along later in the show. This is a little preview of the contest. Our mystery bird is a very small, dark troglodyte species with a dark brown back and wings, brown barring on the breast and belly, a thin 
pointed brown and black bill, a pale eyebrow over dark brown eyes, and a usually cocked upward tail, shorter than those of its relatives. Our bird breeds in coniferous forests through most of Canada in the northeastern U.S. and the Great Lakes region, and winters across the eastern half of the U.S. down to the Gulf Coast. It feeds on insects and other small invertebrates in spring and summer, along with berries in the fall and winter. It's our mystery bird, and we have a very special feeder this morning from Brome Bird Care. This is not uh, only a it's not only a feeder, it's a... Mega 600 feeder. That's right, we thought this deserved a little drama there. It has an extra-large tube that holds nearly two and a half pounds of seed, easy to clean and chew-proof, and includes the Brome Seed Ventilation System and the Brome Lifetime Care Warranty. We also have a cool extra prize. It's the Backyard Field Guide. This is the... The new backyard birds, east or west, depending where our winner is, will decide which book uh, our winner would like, or our winner will decide. Backyard birds, east and west, featuring 99 birds. It's pretty cool with some great, great photographs there by Brian Small, who is uh, one of the great bird photographers on the planet. Coming up on our mystery bird contest a little bit later on in this morning's show. Here's a salute to another of our Talking Birds ambassadors helping us get the word out about birds and conservation. And we salute Chris Stafford from Lewisburg, Tennessee. Chris says, I started birding several years ago after losing my brother. The stress of it all was causing my own health to decline. Birding allowed me to slow down and remember that I was part of something so much bigger. Life still gets away from me, Chris says, but when your podcast pops up on my feed, I'm reminded to make some time, grab my binoculars, and head out onto my patch while listening to Talking Birds. We like that. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining our Ambassadors family. Easy to do at TalkingBirds.com under the Get Involved button. Still to come on our show today, we'll talk with Hesper Lana Fang about her experiences as a falconer. And we'll talk with our backyard bird expert, Mike O'Connor, in the Let's Ask Mike Live segment about wayward birds that may show up in your backyard this uh, fall and maybe winter. And up next, a bird that many associate with the recent Thanksgiving Day holiday and maybe the whole holiday season is today's Talking Birds featured feathered friend. From the mid-1800s to the early 1900s, the North American population of today's featured feathered friend underwent a decline from about 10 million individuals to about 30,000, thanks to excessive hunting and habitat loss. Our bird, a very large, mostly brown game bird with a naked head and red throat wattles, is the wild turkey. Starting in the 1950s, a very successful wild turkey restoration program began. More about their population numbers in a moment. Here are some pretty amazing facts and a little trivia about the wild turkey. Evidence indicates that wild turkeys have existed in North America 
for more than 10 million years. Just a single vote in Congress kept the wild turkey from becoming America's national emblem, instead of the bald eagle, a bird that Ben Franklin described as being a bad moral character. But Native American Apache tribe members considered the wild turkey to be timid and wouldn't use it for food or use its feathers on their arrows. The wild turkey is said to be the only Native North American animal that's been widely domesticated. Wild turkeys can run up to 25 miles an hour, and they can fly up to 55 miles an hour. Mature wild turkeys have about 3,500 feathers. That fleshy growth that droops over the bill of the male wild turkey is called a snood. And what do male wild turkeys have on their legs that females don't? Answer, spurs. Yes, the wild turkey has a lot of attributes that other birds just can't claim. And is there another bird that has a bourbon named after it? Well, there is Old Crow uh, and Kentucky Owl, but those aren't actual species names. Meanwhile, despite the big comeback of wild turkeys, there has been a recent population decline in parts of the South and Midwest, down about 15% between 2004 and 2014, and down another 3% between 2014 and 2019. North Carolina State University wildlife ecology professor Christopher Mormon told the Washington Post recently that while there are numerous theories about this population drop, the actual reason isn't really known. Today's Talking Birds featured feathered friend, Meliagris Galapavo, the wild turkey. Welcome again to our show, number 963. We do our live show here on Sunday mornings. It's the 3rd of December as we do our show live today. Hesper Lana Fang is a bird lover, a birder, and a falconer. And she joins us from her birding territory in central Texas to tell us about falconry and her experience with it. Good morning, Hesper. Good morning, Ray. Thank you for letting me be here today. I'm very excited to talk about falconry with you. Our pleasure, indeed. So the definition of, uh, of falconry, you can correct me on this if needed, the art or sport of pursuing quarry with falcons or other birds of prey and the keeping and training of such birds. How does that match up with how you see falconry? Yes, that's uh, consistent with the definition of falconry. Yes, uh, a lot of people will go to a falconry show at a fair or at a bird center, and it's really just a demonstration of skills associated with falconry, mm-hmm. and true falconry is hunting. Mm-hmm. So you go out into the field with your bird, just trying to picture this. So describe for us, if you would, what happens and, and why. Well, essentially, it's a partnership that you build with your bird that allows you to, as the human to become part of that that hunting activity that the bird would naturally do in the wild. And so essentially there's many different forms of falconry, but essentially what happens is the human is on the ground as a flusher and the bird is the catcher. Okay. And the bird goes out, gets some prey and brings it back. So my question is, why does the bird need food 
from you because it comes back to get the food that you have, right? Why does it need to do that? Uh, well, the that's a common misconception. The bird doesn't actually bring the quarry back. The bird uh, catches the prey if the hunt is successful. Mm -hmm. And then you it's your job to rush over to where the bird is and protect it from other predators that may try to come steal that prey. And uh, and if the prey is still alive, you dispatch it. You try to give it a, a, a merciful, quick death. And uh, and and what you present is a, a clean piece of meat that's already ready for the bird to eat. And that way the bird doesn't have to worry about plucking the prey and breaking into it, which is very uh, energy costly. Mm -hmm. And so that prey would become food at a later time then? Uh, yes, yes. It, it eventually all goes back to the hawk. Okay. So birds employed in falconry are not pets. I'm sure people have, uh, you know, maybe thought that or suggested, suggested that. But you describe falconry as a conservation activity. Tell us about that. Well, I do believe that's true. And the, the big story there about falconry and conservation is with the recovery of the peregrine falcon. And a lot of people aren't aware that the Peregrine Fund was started by a falconer named Tom Cade out of Cornell Lab of Ornithology in the 70s. And up until about five years ago, it was largely falconer-led and run and funded. And um, and now it's one of the most important conservation organizations in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, and as of 1999, the Peregrine Falcon has been delisted officially from the endangered species list. And now it's a species of least concern. So we're very proud of that. And then on a more micro scale and the individual scale, I believe uh, this statistically around 70, 80 percent of young raptors don't make it past their first year. And a lot of that, a major reason for that is because of starvation, because young raptors coming out of the nest don't necessarily know how to hunt yet. And that's a skill that's honed through multiple failures. And if they have too many of those failures, they, they don't eat and they, they, they die, they pass away. And so under the safety of a falconry relationship, they've got this endless supply of food that they can get They're They're not in danger of starvation and they're safe from predators, from natural disasters. And, um, and we might protect them as best as we can. And then in the spring, when you release them, you're releasing an animal that is stronger and fitter and hopefully better for its time that it's spent with you. And it's very likely after its first that first hardest winter of its life to uh, to go on and become a successful member of the breeding population. Well, I want to ask you about that release question. I watched an interview you did with PBS, and you described the first success you had with your first bird, an American kestrel. Uh, and by the way, you imagined it would happen in some spectacular natural setting, I believe, but that wasn't quite what happened, right? <laughs> Uh, not quite, not quite. You know, falconry is this, it's got this whole big romantic connotation to it. And you think of um, the sport of kings, right? You think of like misty moors of Scotland and um, these beautiful birds. And but as it happened for me, urban falconry today, right? It, uh, it, it happened. I caught my first head of quarry in a Taco Bell parking lot <laughs> in the drive through. <laughs> Very glorious, but it was a great moment for me. And, and certainly for the people driving through there at the, uh, the drive-up window, I'm sure. 
Well, you you talked about releasing uh, that kestrel that you called goji, I believe, back into the wild. So my question is, how do you how do you release a bird that you've partnered with, and why doesn't it just come back to you? And by the way, that was a very moving scene. I, I recommend that PBS uh, interview with you. But 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 uh, how does how does that happen? How do you do that? Oh, thank you so much. It. It was a very difficult release for me because I loved that bird so much. I, I had him with me for two years, just constantly thinking about him and uh, and managing him and hunting with him. And he was a great little bird. And in the end, I really thought it was very important for him to go back in the wild and contribute to the breeding population. And so, uh, and, and, and as much as you love your bird, you, you got to get inside the mind of the bird and, and, Hawks, uh, falcons, raptors in general are largely asocial in the wild. And so they don't form that social bond with you. They don't love you the way a dog would. Uh, But they have this conditional food relationship with you and this working hunting partnership, right? And uh, and the way it works during a falconry season is is that there is you have to understand their daily schedule and when they're likely to be motivated by hunger, that drive to catch something versus just sitting there and digesting their food. And so when you release a bird, you spend some time uh, uh, bulking them up, so to speak, to give them the best chance of survival. And then you give them one big last meal on your fist. Uh, to remember you by, I guess, and then you release them, and 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 they go and sit somewhere in a tree, and they're they're full. They just had a huge meal, so they are not motivated to come back to you for more food because they have already got food in their stomach. Mm-hmm. And then you walk away. Walk and that's away. it. And they never they never lose their ability to survive in the wild. That's one of the beauty the the beautiful aspects of falconry for me. Mm-hmm. Just very but quickly. Oh, sorry. I, I was going to say it's the only relationship with a wild animal that I can think of where the wild animal retains its wildness and agency. Mm-hmm. I know becoming a falconer is a complex process, as it should be. But uh, for people who are thinking, I want to do this, what's a quick first step? Um, it's uh, it's a little bit of a process. In Texas, you have to uh, or it, it, you have to get a falconry license, and that entails passing a hundred question written exam, and uh, and you have to have the equipment on your premises, and you have to allow a Parks and Wildlife agent to come inspect your property and your equipment, and they have to pass you, and then you get your falconry license, you need a hunting license and uh, a duck stamp if you're going to hunt ducks, and then you're good to go. Uh, you, ha- you have to obtain a sponsor that's willing to sponsor you as an apprentice for two years. All right. Hesper yeah. Lana Fang is a bird lover, birder, and falconer, and you can follow her and see lots of wonderful photos as well on her Instagram account at Hesper F, F as in Frank or Fang, in this case, Hesper F. Hesper, thanks for being on the show, and good luck with your newest bird, by the way. We'll talk more about that another time. Thank you so much, Ray. Really appreciate the opportunity. Hesper Fang here on Talking Birds. And up next, our mystery bird contest in just one minute. The flutter of a tail feather. The flash of a wing bar in mid-flight. You don't always have a lot of time to identify a bird in nature, let alone to appreciate its beauty. But with Vortex Optics, you'll have the power to bring every wild moment closer. When you choose Vortex, you're choosing to have a partner in the field as passionate about nature as you are. 
Whether you're spotting old friends on the backyard feeder or packing for a once-in-a-lifetime trip to add a few species to your life list, Vortex offers a full range of optics and optics accessories for every birder and every budget. And whether the birds are taking you to another state or another country, you're always covered by the Vortex VIP warranty, an unlimited lifetime promise to keep you and your optic covered. If you'd like to learn more or if you need help choosing your next optic, Give Vortex a call at 1-800-4-VORTEX or visit vortexoptics.com. There's our mystery bird, a very small, dark troglodyte species with a dark brown back and wings, brown barring on the breast and belly, a thin, pointed brown and black bill, a pale eyebrow over the dark brown eyes, and a usually cocked upward tail, shorter than those of its relatives, Our bird is breeding in coniferous forests through most of Canada and the northeastern U.S. and Great Lakes region, wintering across the eastern half of the U.S. down to the Gulf Coast. What is our mystery bird? Please call us as soon as you can so we'll have time for your call and guess or definitive answer because no correct answer means a drawing determines our winner of the beautiful Brome Bird Care Mega 600 feeder and that backyard Field Guide, East or West, with 99 birds and fabulous photos by Brian E. Small. Here's the number to call, and please do call us as soon as you can with your guess or answer at 781-837-4900. That's 781-837-4900. Up next, it's Let's Ask Mike, live in just one minute. Hello, I'm Ed Begley, Jr., And wherever you call home, the sounds of wildlife connect you with a greater family of life. That's why you shudder each time you see woods, marshes, meadows, or grasslands being destroyed. You know that countless birds and other wild animals are losing their homes, the greatest threat to their survival. Among the growing number of threats to wildlife, habitat loss is the most devastating. The Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust offers a humane solution working with private landowners to protect habitat as permanent safe havens for wildlife. When you hear the familiar wild voices you love, remember, your voice is the one that can speak for wildlife and for the land they call home, ensuring that it stays forever wild. To learn more, to work with the Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust, visit wildlifelandtrust.org. Well, you may have heard of Wrongway Corrigan as a famous or infamous uh, football player from I'm not sure when. Uh, But today we have Wrongway O'Connor. That would be Mike O'Connor down there at the famous Bird Watchers General Store on Cape Cod. Good morning, Mike. How old do you think the people listening are if they remember Wrongway Corrigan? Well, I did that for you because I figured you you would (laughs) perhaps uh, remember. Um, Yeah. But uh, you're not the one who's wrong way. You're just observing uh, birds that are going wrong. I'm observing, right. Today we're going to talk about uh, unusual birds that show up in areas where they aren't supposed to be. And typically when when a bird shows up that shouldn't be in the area, like right now um, I have orioles that should have been gone, and a neighbor down the street has painted buntings, and they shouldn't be here at any time of the year, and somebody else has a... Western Tanager, and everybody automatically thinks, well, this they were blown in by a storm. Mm. And while storms will bring birds in, occasionally, usually they're seabirds, 
those birds, when they get blown in, like the flamingos that got blown in by that hurricane in September, once those birds recover, and if they do, sometimes they don't recover, but if they do recover and they get their strength back, they get out of town. They go back to where they're supposed to be. And those flamingos that everybody saw, I think it's like 15 of them throughout the country, they're gone. They've worked their way back. But when sometimes when a bird appears in an area this time of year, it simply has migrated the wrong way. So like, like the case of the painted buntings, they're supposed to go on south and they end up north. And the unusual part is, like a neighbor had a, a summer tanager one year, which shouldn't be here even in the summer, and then it showed up in the winter, it returned the next year. So there's evidence that these birds not only, for whatever reason, their GPS gets messed up, and they, they, they go the wrong direction, and when they get to where they think, you know, okay, this looks like Costa Rica, and it's not. It's some suburban yard in Cape Cod or anywhere in North America. They settle in, and they think that's where they're supposed to be. And they didn't get blown in. They flew on their own. They just went the wrong way. And then they'll leave in the spring, and then they come back in the winter if they survive. And it's, it's kind of an unusual thing. And then that gets everybody excited. They run out and take pictures and bring all the weird birds. And then there's more to that where there's birds that – decide, you know what, this migration thing is hard. We have to fly to South America. I'm just going to wait it out. I'm just going to wait it out and see what happens. I'm kind of simplifying the fact. But there are birds that are pioneers that just think, okay, they don't migrate for whatever reason. They're tired, they're sick, they're old, and they survive the winter, and then another bird survives. And that's how the birds expand their range. So they, like we, we have tuft-to-tip mice and cardinals. But back when I was born, there was no tuft-to-tip mice and cardinals in this part of New England, and now they're all through New England. So birds migrate the wrong way, and somehow, sometimes they extend their range, or they just don't bother migrating at all, and again, helps them extend their range. And when, when you, you don't have to do anything about it. People feel bad. They want to help them. Now, let it run their course, because obviously, if it's not good for the species, the, the ones that are going the wrong way don't benefit the species unless they can figure it out on their own. They'll figure it out eventually, right? Right, and now everybody has to go uh, Google wrong way Corrigan. Yeah. yeah, Google wrong way Corrigan. This is very loud music, girl, but for some reason. But, uh, I, think, <laughs> I think we got it the wrong way Corrigan. Everybody's yeah. going to want it. The, oh, the, yeah. the yeah, search, the search numbers are going to be huge for Wrong Way Corrigan <laughs> after this, I can guarantee it. All right, Mike, thank you. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk next week. Sounds okay. okay. All right. Bye-bye. Mike O'Connor there at the famous Birdwatchers uh, General Store on Cape Cod. And we're coming back here to the Mystery Bird Contest and uh, hoping to give away some beautiful prizes here. If someone can identify this bird or just win by way of a drawing, if uh, nobody gets the correct answer, that sometimes happen. happens. Our mystery bird, a small dark troglodyte species with a dark brown back and wings, brown barring on the breast and belly, a thin pointed brown and black bill, a pale eyebrow over dark brown eyes, and a usually cocked upward tail, very diagnostic, shorter than other relatives. So we have our uh, Larry from uh, Situate, Massachusetts, on the line there. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. Good morning. What do you say, Larry, and the old uh, mystery bird there? It's a chestnut-sided wobbler. Why, you sound so confident, I'm sorry to say. Oh, I'm glad you're confident, I guess, but it just wasn't uh, the right answer. That's all that was. 
Thank you for the try, Larry. Thank you. All right, thanks. We have Annette. She is somewhere up in the great state of Vermont. Good morning, Annette. Good morning, Ray. How are you? Well, doing well. Thank you. We have rain here. What is it like up there? It is not raining, but it's very overcast. Just, One of those cozy winter mornings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're moving into that season. I know they call this stick season in Vermont. Am I right before we get yes, into the you, winter? You are right, and then it becomes uh, a white Green Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> White Green Mountain. <laughs> so to speak. Okay. Yeah, it's on its way. We've had a little so far, and yeah. now it melted, but it's on its way. All right. What about that mystery bird? I think it's a winter wren. I think it is, too. That's two of us. A winter awesome. wren. Beautiful job. We are real Thank short you. on time. It's kind of a, a summer wren here in Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. We're just yeah, a... we have them in our woods here on our property. All so right. they're, they're just adorable well, little... Little fellow. Yeah, and enjoy them. Enjoy the winter in Vermont. Thank you very much, Ray. Thank you for calling in, and uh, that is our winter. So, uh, Annette from Vermont, thanks for calling Annette and Winter Wren uh, is the um, correct answer. We are so out of time. Don't forget our new Patreon thing, patreon.com slash birds. Help support the show, and we'll send you some great perks, and we'll see you next week. The Bird Show, I like that. I love it. Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store, Orleans, Cape Cod, birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. And by Vortex Optics, with the VIP warranty, their unlimited lifetime promise to keep you and your optic covered. Learn more at vortexoptics.com. <laughs>